You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Do you ever have anybody come into your office who's just plainly overconfident? Oh, yeah, for sure. All the time. Really? All the time? I mean, not like it's not like a daily occurrence or even a weekly, but I mean, it's happened enough for me to lose count. <laughs> the, the one that sticks out in my mind, I, this was, gosh, this was years ago in the, the tech bubble. So tech stocks were just going through the roof. I had contacted this guy. He said, you come see me. So I was like, all right, well, I'll drive out and see this guy. And I met him out in this office. This guy comes in and he's, he's in his 20s. He was not even dressed for the occasion to have a financial discussion. He was in, you know, just looked like he had just come from like Scarborough Fair or something like that. You know, he's wearing these high leather boots strapped up and some kind of pirate shirt. And, and, and he's leaning back in this arrogant, overconfident way. Okay. I said, well, you know, I mean, meeting with me, obviously, you know, means you, you know, your money is important to you. Tell me what's important to your money about you. I was wondering what, you were hoping that I could do for you. And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. What can you do for me? You tell me what you can do for me. And he kind of leans back and crosses his arms. I was like, I said, well, tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. Financially he says, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well set. Now this guy's in his mid twenties. Yeah. I was like, Oh, okay. Tell tell me about that. And he goes, well, I work for, you know, some, you know, some kind of XYZ.com, you know, whatever is, you know, this yeah. tech, tech company was. And he goes, I've got about 8,000 shares of, you know, XYZ and it's trading at about 250, you know, so that's about 2 million bucks I got, you know, that I got, and, you know, he goes, I'm not sure how much longer I'll be working. I may, you know, uh, scale back. And so I go, oh, do you have anything on that? And so he, sh- he shoves me this report. It, he didn't have 8,000 shares of XYZ. He had 8,000 options of XYZ oh. and only 2000 of them were in the money. Meaning that, you know, if, if the stock was trading at 250, yeah. he could buy it at like 245. Right. So that gave him about $10,000. The other like 6,000 options were not even in the money. They were, they were Any strike prices above the current yeah. price. Right. In other words, they were worthless. He would have to so pay money to was, get less value. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so this guy, so total just overconfidence in what his situation was and didn't even know what he was talking about. And so I, I show him that he has a value of about $10,000. I said, well, tell me your understanding of how stock options work, which is what he oh, had. No. And uh, he's like, what do you mean? I was like, oh no. And it just didn't, it just went down from there. It was, uh, it was, pretty deflating that's for heartbreaking this, uh, for this guy i kind of felt bad for it you have but to it was, you have to it, feel bad a little bit yeah i i did feel bad but it, it was when i think about overconfidence that that interaction is the one that just sticks out because he he'd come into the meeting with such overconfidence and i really felt bad for him afterwards oh man i uh i, I had a guy come into my office one time who this is a, a little bit more extreme I think the man might have been, uh, you know, I I don't know. I don't want to speculate as to what was going on that made him believe that he was a billionaire. Um, But he did believe that he had a billion dollars. And and I was like, well, you know, um, I'm going to treat him with respect and kindness. 
I sure. I am skeptical that somebody I don't know who doesn't know anyone I know walked in off the street with a billion dollars and doesn't doesn't already right. know a financial advisor that can help them. Um, right. It, like he doesn't have advanced financial advisors knocking on his yeah, door. Yeah. Um, and what he had shown me on this piece of paper was a mutual fund that he owned. And then next to it was, you know, $1.248 billion or whatever. And I had to explain to him what uh, market cap was and that the $1.2 billion was not what he owned, but the value of all of the shares of that particular fund combined. Not his fund. Not what he owned. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that was overconfidence or misinterpretation of the facts. Either way, we talked a lot about overconfidence in decision-making with our guest today, Professor Don Moore. He's the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and the holder of the Lorraine Tyson Mitchell Chair in Leadership at the University of Cal Berkeley. He researches overconfidence in decision-making and is the author most recently of Decision Leadership with Max Bazerman. In our conversation, we talked about overconfidence, the risk and benefits that it might pose, uh, manipulation of confidence levels to influence performance outcomes, appropriately calibrating confidence levels to de-bias your own decisions, checking your confidence level by asking yourself what might be wrong, and the practice of asking others to assist you to determine whether overconfidence is influencing your decision. I learned a lot. Sean got his confidence checked a fair amount. I know that you're going to enjoy our conversation with Don. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, with my dad, Sean Smith, this is Decidedly. Hey, Don, I am really excited for an expert on overconfidence to be here um, and help Sean out a little bit. Oh, you son of a bitch. That was exactly... I'll die. I was, was going to say, yeah, I was going to say we brought you under false pretenses. To, it was an intervention for Sanger. <laughs> no, to was... problems <laughs> One of my favorite hobbies, Don, is giving uh, giving my dad a hard time. So thank you for allowing me the space to do that. Um, I'm guessing you don't need me around to excel at that. Sanger. No, I'll do it. I'll do it before <laughs> I d- was doing it earlier. We'll do it afterwards. One of the greatest joys in life is when he gets me with one because it's so rare well um i am always grateful to my boys for um as the british say taking the piss out of me and helping me moderate my level of confidence bringing me down a few notches yeah they, that's what uh, that's what family's for how many boys do you have two josh's two. How old 20 and andy's 17 see that's the mm-hmm. ultimate confidence checker is to have a brother right? <laughs> i think that's what held sean and i back a little bit uh, on the humble scale is I didn't have a brother to tell me when I was being an idiot. I know I did that for my <laughs> sisters, of course, and they should be thankful. Right. You, you took that you took that role yeah, on, I, uh, you know, I, I didn't full, get that check. Full enthusiasm. Uh, so I, 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 I lovingly expressed that to them. A few years ago, yeah. Andy, my younger son told me, dad, I know when you're being overconfident. I said, Oh, tell me. He said, when you, um, tell your students something that you think they understand, and when you make a salad for me that you think I'm going to like. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ever prepared a salad and gone, well, you know, like, I don't know, you might not like it, I tried my best. Everyone's always like so excited about their salad. 
people You're don't gonna love this. Yeah, they don't approach casseroles that way. <laughs> like my mom is the most humble woman in the world when she makes anything in the oven. Well, you know, I tried, like I looked at the recipe, like it's my first time making it. You make a salad. This is going to be the best salad you've ever had. It's lettuce. Change your life. Classic overconfidence. <laughs> That's some wisdom. You know, there, there is a there is overconfidence in in, in Sanger and Eyes, Eyes Industry that that just runs rampant uh, when the market's going great guns. You know, it's, it's, we don't hear it so much now, but you know, mm -hmm. I will have people come into my office that have no business investing in individual stocks or, you know, leaning into the stock market aggressively. And they'll just like, you know, Hey, you know, my brother-in-law's got this uh, friend who's uh, whose neighbor, you know, works for this company. And he thinks that, you know, they're really going to do something, you know, and they'll just want to do something, you know, and everybody thinks they're an investing genius when the market's going up and uh, that all comes crashing down like a house of cards <laughs> Market's uh -huh. like early 2022. The worst thing that can happen is for someone to get a win early in life doing that. You never recover. Oh, it's like yeah. going to the casino and your first day there, you make a thousand bucks. Oh, yeah. That's the worst that can happen to you is your first bet you win. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You lose the humility that is so essential for keeping you solvent later on. I, you know, but I, I see that overconfidence in, in not just individual investors. I saw it one time. There was a, uh, I was having a breakfast meeting with analysts from one of the large investment companies. He's sitting there over handed me some cut sheets on, uh, on his investment fund. And he says, you know, our, uh, our performance, you know, we, we, the, uh, Barclays ag, you know, we beat the ag index. I was like, Oh, wow. You know, that's, that's impressive. You know, for a bond fund to consistently beat the index is uh, pretty remarkable. And so I'm, I'm getting really interested in this fund. I, and I glanced down at the stuff he had given me. He didn't beat it at all. I'm like, well, it doesn't look like you, that the fund beats the index at all. And he's like, Oh, I was I was talking about you know our our internal numbers on the institutional side. <laughs> oh, you mean the index the made up? Not available. Yeah. The thing that's not available <laughs> to retail investors at all. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, it was so stupid. Some of my research identifies the circumstances under which people are most prone to overconfidence and when they're prone to underconfidence, I mean, underconfidence is, is a real issue, right? So the yeah. circumstances in which people are most likely to think that they're better than others are when the task is easy. Like you said, in a booming market, everybody can feel like they're a genius. And then when everything goes south, it's easy for people to feel like, oh, this is hopeless. I can't do this. And to pull out at exactly the wrong moment, right? And so the challenge there is figuring out how to calibrate your confidence. And that is a real challenge, figuring out how confident you should be when you should pay attention to your internal numbers and yeah. <laughs> when you should be appropriately self-critical. How did, how did you get involved in studying overconfidence at all? Huh. I mean, that's, that's a, such an interesting area. Yeah. Well, so um, it is uh, it, my, my fascination is with decision making biases, the, the ways in which um, flesh and blood mortals like you and me uh, fall short of the perfectly rational ideal in the way that we make decisions. And um, one of the biggies is overconfidence. So there is broad consensus among scholars who study this stuff that overconfidence is one of the biggest, most pervasive, most consequential of the biases to which human judgment is vulnerable. So um, it's, it's a topic worth studying. And for my dissertation way back when, 
I thought I found an instance where people were systematically underconfident, which came as a bit of a surprise because the consensus in the literature was basically that people are overconfident most of the time about most things. So chasing right. that down and figuring out when people are underconfident has led me uh, to mine this rich vein of psychology, distinguishing the different sorts of overconfidence, when they're most likely to occur, and where they'll trip up our decision-making and lead us to make mistakes. What are the different types of overconfidence you were talking about? Um, overestimation is thinking that okay. you're better than you are. Overplacement <laughs> is the, <laughs> the exaggerated belief that you're better than others. And overprecision, Behavioral oh, okay. finance scholars agree that this is the one that really um, is most likely to affect investors, and that is the excessive faith that you know the truth, that you have correctly mm. estimated the true value of some security, mm. or you know where it's headed in the future. Um, when you believe too strongly in your own noisy private signal, you'll be too willing to trade on that uh, imperfect information, even against other counterparties who have more information. It's what leads um, individuals, day traders, to risk their retirement savings in market transactions with the smart money, the better informed hedge fund managers who uh, are only too willing to trade against them when, they, when those managers have better information than the individual investors do. Even I hear it from professionals. Yeah. And they say, oh, well, you know, we think, you know, interest rates going to go to X, you know, by the end of the year. And, it, you know, I only say, well, based on what? And, and there's no, nothing behind it's it. Never they just sort reason. of think that. No, it's never quantitative. It's just their guess, you know. And as you said, there's somebody trading against that. It's just a speculative crapshoot based on competing overconfidences. Yeah, the, the, the behavioral component of, of investing is so important. It, and, and I think, you, you know, I don't even hear the word behavioral finance. Both Sean and I are, you know, we would consider ourselves behavioral financial advisors. Um, so I can appreciate the the art and the science of that. That's an area certainly of overconfidence or that are areas of underconfidence with money and not to put you on the spot, but with, are there areas of underconfidence with money that stand out to you? Oh my God, there's so many people who would benefit from putting their money in the market and this doesn't mean uh, becoming that, that my mom should become a day trader. So there's so much knowledge they're aware that they don't have. They're intimidated and they stay out completely. And that underconfidence means that they're losing out on potential yeah. benefits that they should be enjoying. So is that underconfidence or is it um, irrational like fear? fear or yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, if they're worried about the possibility that they could be exploited in a market transaction that they don't completely understand, I mean, there's there's decent basis for them to worry about that, right? If they're pretty clueless, my mom, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot she doesn't know. Yeah, I mean, some people just, the they works. just, they don't know the ABCs about money. And, and I, in my opinion, the people who don't know the ABCs, usually they don't, they know they don't know. It's the people who've mm -hmm. learned the alphabet a little bit and they think they're Shakespeare. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so you two have heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect, the, the um, dangerous zone where people who um, know too little to understand how little they know yeah. uh, can get themselves into real trouble, right? 
oh, my buddy told me about this, you know, startup that that he says is just going to go gangbusters. So I'm putting yeah. my retirement savings in that. That those are the people who are at greatest risk. And so the challenge there is calibrating uh, your uncertainty, figuring out how little you know, and adjusting your your strategy going forward appropriately. Obviously, if um, you're you're really clueless, getting a little bit of advice to help you figure out what there is to know and the sort of sensible options for someone who's coming to the market as a relative neophyte. Yeah. The, um, I'm glad you mentioned the Dunning Kruger effect. I feel like you can't really have a conversation about confidence without talking about that study. (laughs) Um, I was reading something earlier this week that I don't know if this is just my penchant for finding the contrarian points of view on every topic ever, but this article was basically saying why it's not real. Okay. And I thought, you know what, nobody better to ask than Don on that. Um, the, the entire point of the article, if I could sum it up in like one sentence would be that they're saying the effect of the Dunning-Kruger is explained almost entirely by the phenomenon of regression to the mean. Is that real? Am I, do I need to like delete all the memes that I've posted about Dunning-Kruger effect? (laughs) Um, Well, uh, so I'll leave the harsh criticism to your dad. Uh, But um, I will note that that both can be true and there's, there's pretty good evidence for both. So uh, regression to the mean that, Regression to the mean is definitely true. Uh, and regression to the mean just describes the statistical reality that any extreme observation, high or low, can be expected to regress to its mean in the future. So it, when I talk about this in class, I talk about athletic performances, yeah. right? That, it, that um, the rookie of the year is the player who has been both talented and lucky. How you get to be the very best new player in the league, there, there's some, there's a, a dose of luck in there almost inevitably and some ability and the ability will stick around for the next year, but the luck won't. And that is the origin of the curse of being on the cover of Sports Illustrated, right? The rookie of the year who winds up on the cover, their career is never the same after that. Um, well, that's because the, part of why they were so good was that they were lucky and the luck won't stick around. Right. Okay. So um, we can all expect to regress to our mean performances. The mutual fund that did best last year is unlikely to be the very best the next year because it's mm-hmm. going to regress to the mean performance of, of funds like it. Yeah, it might have some unique aspects of an investment strategy that might lead it to deviate from the mean, but unless you can count on that strategy being perennially a winning strategy, then yeah, don't bet on that fund again. Okay, so mutual funds, uh, investment managers, uh, specific investments regress to the market mean uh, in subsequent periods. So that's one of the dangers of, of chasing last year's winners, of course. So um, it, the Dunning-Kruger is all about individuals and the degree to which they understand their abilities and strengths. So those who think they're the best if they've made any error estimating their performance, they will actually be worse than they think they are. And those who think they're the worst will, if they've made any error estimating their performance, will have underestimated uh, their performance. Okay, so how do we reconcile that with the fact that um, Dunning-Kruger shows that those who are the worst 
um, tend to overestimate. Well, if you're conditioning on actually being the worst, here we're getting down into the weeds of measurement and conditional probabilities a little bit. But if you condition on those who um, actually are the worst, they will have overestimated their performance. Ask me more questions if I haven't been yeah, clear Yeah, they're, they're already that. on the bottom. They're already in the bottom yeah. quartile. So if you randomly plot their perceived performance, right. it has a higher chance they of think being they're above best average, right? than below. Yeah. Okay, totally makes okay. sense. So that's the regression to the mean argument. Um, in addition, Dunning and Kruger have a point, which is to say that those who are so clueless, they don't even understand how to quantify performance or understand the limitations, their own limitations coming to the task, they, are, they will be especially prone to overestimate. So you got both of those things going on. So uh, estimates of performance are regressive, flatter than actual performance when you're conditioning on actual performance, of course, because they're noisy measures. And so the worst will overestimate and they will do so that they will do so even more so than the best underestimate because the best often have a, a, a good sense of what constitutes good performance. And so there will be less noise at the top end of the distribution. Okay. Very, no, makes total sense. Wait, 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 I, I'm so glad I asked you because this was, I'm going to give you the internal monologue of me reading that article sitting on my couch last week. Oh man, this effect is bullshit. I can't wait to tell Don about this. <laughs> and then, and then, but hold on, I get to the end and I go, oh, wait a second. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I just experienced the effect. Read one article. I'm an expert. Well, you know, so obviously when you look at overconfidence, there's some inherent risk in, in a lot of fields in, in, in investing as well, particularly uh, that would cause you to take on tasks that you're likely to fail at to cause you to take risks that you shouldn't take. All right. So overconfidence has some inherent and, and obvious risks. But I, I think, don't you need a certain level of confidence to be able to encourage you and give you that sort of internal dialogue to, to take on tasks, to seek goals, to seek to improve? So how do you determine where that really narrow gap is, right, between appropriate confidence and overconfidence? Great question. And um, so my advice to be well calibrated in your confidence meets its uh, most emotional challenge in the field of entrepreneurship, where uh, no doubt you have clients who are entrepreneurs who say, in order to succeed, I have to believe in myself and my venture. There are VCs and advisors to entrepreneurs who say you have to be delusionally confident in your prospects for success. That's your only chance for persuading investors. And then I think about the other side of that advice and the entrepreneurs who have sunk their life savings and the best years of their lives in ventures that ultimately fail. And I think, oh, man, like if I'm giving responsible advice to my students before they're thinking about an entrepreneurial startup, like I want them to make wise decisions, taking into account the real expected value of those startups. And one of the challenges there with, with entrepreneurship is that it's a really skewed distribution, right? So there are a lot of startups that go belly up within a few years. And then there's Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. And of course, those 
uh, folks way out on the right tail of that distribution are hyper salient to the person who's starting their company. That's where they want to wind up. If the payout, if the possible payout is sufficiently high, it can still be rational to invest, um, even if the probability is really, really low. But th that, that is the essence of risk taking, right? You know that there's a less than 1% probability of succeeding, but you expect the payout to be 1,000 to 1, and so you think the expected value is positive. Whew, look out. You're, you're, if you mess up estimating that probability because you've talked yourself in to the merits of your wonderful idea, ooh, yeah, that could turn out badly. That's a really interesting point. I was reading this study from the Center of Entrepreneurship, and they talked about the difference between um, success rates in male business owners and female business owners. So I, I think everyone, just based on observation, can recognize that women are more or less likely to become entrepreneurs than men, right? And in in the study, they asked these existing women entrepreneurs and men entrepreneurs, you know, is your business successful? 42% of the women, I think, said that their business was successful and 62%, so over half of the men said they're successful. And if you just look at that, it's like, oh, dang, you know, I guess the women aren't doing so well. Well, the women are actually doing better women were doing better than the men, but the men thought they were doing better. And so long term, <laughs> the women in these in this study outperformed the the male entrepreneurs, even though they were less likely to go in. And, and I think it's an interesting dynamic where most women, at least I've heard from the women in my life that they struggle with confidence, that they kind of envy the men in their life that seem to have this undeserved confidence. And there's, I'm guessing a lot of sociological issues that go into that. Um, but there's some benefit <laughs> to not being instilled with that that confidence. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, my colleague here at the high school, Terry O'Dean, has, has this paper, Boys Will Be Boys, examining differences between uh, men's and women's investment strategies and notes uh, that the women in his sample were less likely to engage in active uh, trading. They're more likely mm -hmm. to put their money uh, in in something and let it ride. And so they paid fewer transaction costs and on average performed better. Um, and so that, that makes a less confident approach look pretty good and ought to make us skeptical of advice from books like The Confidence Code, which noted disparities between male and female overconfidence and basically gave the message, ladies, we got to step up our game. And I'm like, no, if, if what you're saying is you should be yeah. more overconfident like the guys, that, that doesn't seem so smart. Yeah I, wonder, yeah, I wonder why we don't see that become a circular effect that, that women on, because I've, I've seen studies that show the same thing that, that women trade less actively therefore get better investment results and it seems like you that that it would we were talking about reversion to the beam that that the women would go hey we're better at this like and, and lean into it and become more active as a result of overconfidence thereby pulling down their results and you know and round and round we go right there are some circumstances in which you get that sort of market correction to to gender disparities so uh this uh, really smart researcher at university of chicago alex emus um has uh, looked at reputations in uh an online setting where uh um, people are giving math advice 
And for the women to obtain status on this website, uh, they have to be better than the men on average because they're, they're swimming upstream against this stereotype that women aren't good at math. Women who have obtained status get so much more credibility than men of similar status because the users on the site know that women have to be better mm. in order to, to gain that mm -hmm. reputation. So there's some places where there can be that self-correcting mechanism, but the place where it fails is where the social interpersonal display of confidence becomes more important, right? So if the entrepreneur gets funded by the VC who they persuade of their success, independent of their actual probability of success, then showing off can win the day. And those are the people that get the opportunity to play the game because they can talk a big game. Say that again. So the Dis where the display of overconfidence has some sort of actual benefit. Yeah. I mean, it's easiest to think of politicians. Yeah. And the, the um, reckless and wanton displays of confidence that they show off heading into an election, like the election prompt, the campaign promises that they make. Um, if you can talk a bigger game than the other, than your rivals, then sometimes you'll get the chance to play, right? You get elected and get to try your hand at actually delivering on those promises, or you get the VC funding or the bank loan that makes it possible for you to try out your, your uh, startup idea. And so um, if the social display of confidence is what really gets you in, then those who can uh, show off and some have argued that if you believe it in your heart of hearts, that helps you make that, make that claim and persuade others, then, then you'll get the selection effect where those who are well calibrated might actually be at a disadvantage to make that case and get the funding or the votes. You know, I, ju I just saw something the other day on the very top, it was speaking to politics and it was saying the way that we select leaders is not based on a competence scale uh, or quantitative methodology at all, it was who actually talked the most, you know, they, so they look at, you know, <laughs> selecting jury foreman, selecting project heads, selecting, you know, all these types of things. It was who had the volume of words. And so it would seem that overconfidence probably leads to that effect. That's why we probably see a lot of uh, politicians that, that seem to display this overconfidence. I, I think maybe that's one of the rare areas where overconfidence can be an advantage rather than disadvantage. I mean, it's a, it can uh, be an advantage on the campaign trail, but it can be well, costly. Yeah, I think probably like ultimately, you. yeah, ultimately it's probably a disadvantage, but, uh, you know, an advantage in terms of getting so selected. What, is that, that's what does it say this. about that's us? It says we're suckers that we have to uh, worry about being duped by big talkers who uh, lay it on thick in order to get our vote or our support or the job offer or the promotion, and that we ought to um, bring a healthy dose of skepticism to any such claim. Is there a, I mean, is there a biological reason that we're attracted to confidence? Is that what purpose does it serve if we can identify so many negative outcomes? So um, there have been some who've tried to make the case for an evolutionary argument uh, for the benefits of confidence. And it really centers on this sort of social display of persuading others that um, if you can show off, you can, it might enhance your probability of uh, attracting a mate, 
um, of uh, winning a fight, right? So there's there's this uh, interesting model uh, that if you can persuade your rival that you're bigger and tougher than you are, then you might be able to avoid a fight that you could lose. And then that raises all this complexity around uh, deception and the ability to detect deception um, and the evolutionary arguments there get get complicated and interesting fast. Yeah, or even just win a fight before you show up to the fight. I mean, prof- nobody wants to watch a professional fighter who's like, well, I could lose today. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, my opponent's pretty strong. <laughs> okay, those who wind up in the ring are not those who are well calibrated. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I've heard so many interviews and, and talked to fighters who will will admit a lot, mostly behind closed doors. You know, man, I'm I'm pooping my pants leading up to a fight. Like I'm scared to death. Like this guy could it could destroy me. It could ruin my life. It could really hurt. They get on the mic, they get at the press conference, they get the weigh-ins, they get leading up to the fight. They're not going to show any of that. And I guess some of it is, you know, hey, I don't want to show any weakness. But the best fighters, the best fighters, even without necessarily doing it with like a forced bravado or anything, have already convinced their opponent that they're going to win. Right? Like, I don't think anyone <laughs> showed up to fight Mike Tyson and thought that they had a chance. <laughs> you know, they didn't and these yeah. are the tough guys. Yeah. It, so when you when you look at people who engage in dangerous activity, uh, skydivers, base jumpers, big wave surfers, um, those are people. They aren't trying to impress any rival. Yeah. The wave doesn't care how confident you are. Yeah. And those are people who think a lot about how to protect themselves from risk and who are keenly aware of how being too sure of themselves and not taking precautions, that's going to shorten their life expectancies by a lot. I guess they have to, right? I mean, that, that, that confidence doesn't do them any good. That doesn't have a, a, a positive outcome. Yeah. Lots of, so you, in real life, we see confidence and performance correlated, right? The confident athlete is more likely to win. Yeah. But it's really hard to tell the degree to which um, the confidence caused the success or they were both caused by actual ability or practice or preparation. In, so my lab has attempted to study. Um, so in order to answer that question, how much does confidence actually help per se, independent of ability? What you need is, is an experimental manipulation, an exogenous influence on confidence that uh, operates independent of ability or preparation. So we've run some experiments where we try to influence people's confidence. And what we find again and again is that people think they'll do better when they're confident and outside observers are um, only too willing to bet on the confident competitors, but that like fooling yourself into being more confident or having your confidence manipulated, it doesn't actually benefit you, not on the tasks that we've mm. been able to study. So what, what was the experiment that you ran? So uh, we, we began by asking a bunch of people, where do you think confidence would help you perform? And they gave us a whole bunch of different performance domains. Some people said they thought that it would make them better lovers. 
we had trouble designing an experiment to test that in our laboratory. Uh, but other people said things like, um, uh, it'd make me perform better on a math test or a trivia quiz or like a te uh, some athletic performance task. So we designed experiments to test those beliefs. So we manipulated confidence ahead of a math test or a trivia test or some test of physical endurance or athletic performance. And like I said, each time we found that our, our participants, they, they thought confidence would help, but we couldn't detect any actual effect of the confidence. So if confidence is so harmful, uh, overconfidence is, is harmful, short of getting, you know, punched in the face, knocked out, uh, <laughs> failing your math test, uh, going broke as a business leader, short of failing and having a humbling experience, what can we do to calibrate our confidence appropriately and avoid the painful humbling moments? The single best debiasing strategy that's been identified by st studies on judgment, decision-making and social psychology in a bunch of different domains is ask yourself why you might be wrong. You have information that's useful to help you calibrate your confidence better. It's also really helpful to seek out honest feedback from others. So courageous managers pick deputies, promote colleagues who have the, the courage to tell them when they're wrong. It's the um, bosses with weak egos who only appoint the, those who tell them yes yeah. and and praise them you don't want that as the person running an organization the person making the important decisions you want to have courageous critics around you who are willing to tell you when you're messing up and that 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 information that uh criticism that negative feedback is essential for making wise decisions and helping you check yourself and stop yourself before you commit to making a bad decision Okay, so having people in your corner who are going to check you when you're making mistakes, um, but also asking ourselves, how can we ask ourselves? Um, I mean, I, yeah, I can, I can ask that question to myself. I don't know if I'm going to remember if I'm already confident. <laughs> I don't need to because, you know, I've got the confidence. So one way that, that um, poker players help each other get better calibrated is by asking, want to bet? So Annie Duke, uh, in her book, Thinking in Bets, is, is just priceless on this uh, and tells wonderful stories of propositional bets where, like, you know, one poker player will be talking about uh, how, you know, they could eat a uh, um, hundred uh, White Castle burgers or uh, the the um, late night adrenaline yeah. junkie says, yeah, sure, I could live happily in Des Moines, Iowa. And then their buddies say, <laughs> want to bet? I'll put $10,000 on you not being able to last a month in Des Moines. So this was a real bet where like uh, the, the person who said he could live in Des Moines, his buddies were like, okay, we're, you're going to live on one street in suburban Des Moines, Iowa. You can't leave that street. There, on that street, there is one restaurant and one bar that both closed at 10 p.m. They said, if you live there a month... We'll pay you $10,000. <laughs> he got on the plane the next morning. And after he'd been there a week, he called his buddies and was like, 
yeah, this is easy. No problem. How about I let you guys out of your bet? And uh, you just you just pay me $5,000 right now. And they smell desperation. They said, not a chance. Not a chance. You got to stick it out. And he said, okay, come on. Let me out of it. I'll, I'll pay you. How about if I pay you? And he wound up settling for like 5000 bucks. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So challenging each other by asking, want to bet? Like, put some real stakes on that. What is the probability associated with this outcome in which you profess to have so much confidence? Um, when we think about putting real money on the line, even if it's just a reputational bet with dollar stakes, it helps discipline our thinking and helps us get serious about calibrating that confidence. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. You know, so I, I think when you look at being honest with yourself and sort of asking that question, putting some real skin in the game probably uh, helps you be honest with how much you're willing to wager to uh, to test your confidence in this premise. You're, Sean does that you're to me uh, without knowing that. I do that nonstop. Sean, you would do that to me all the time. Oh, oh I could, I could so totally sorry. do this or that or the other thing. You know, I hit a cool pool shot. You didn't mean to do that. Yes, I did. Oh, really? Could you do it again? Totally. Want to bet? You know, don't have to. <laughs> uh-huh. You're a sucker for the double or nothing. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm not. I, I'm thankful for those experiences when I was younger. I, I'll never have a gambling addiction because Sean and I would play pool and we would we would bet like five, either five dollars or you got to clean the house for 15 minutes or whatever, which, you know, I'm like, oh, pretty good, you know, hourly rate. Um, 20 bucks an hour. That's not, not so bad. A uh, trade off. And I would lose every game and I would lose the game <laughs> and you'd go, Oh, you double or nothing. And I was a sucker. And so I'd say, well, yeah, cause I always thought I could beat him. Um, cause I was really, really good. I was undefeated when I practiced by myself. Uh, and <laughs> then he'd come, he'd beat me again and I'd end up cleaning the house for three hours on a Wednesday. <laughs> and, and you know i got you on a double or nothing one time and you had to swim out into the lake at the ranch in the winter oh, time yeah in january <laughs> swim out in the lake and i think i ended up getting yeah. to eat a worm too it just it got really bad <laughs> I think you did. yeah no you kept well you kept you were so over you were classically overconfident in your ability to win this uh trivia game when i was lake. young there was no amount of times that i could lose that would make me think I would not win the next one. Um, Sean, it sounds like you deserve some credit for parenting successes, <laughs> helping your son calibrate his confidence. Um, well, I, and I, I would just those, know uh, that when you're, when you're crazy. practicing by yourself, it's easy to remember all the wins, right? Yeah. Yes. And they, like the investor who just wants to talk about all the the, the ones the winners that they yeah. picked and conveniently forget, forgets all the losers that their money is still in. Oh yeah, like everybody who's ever gone to Vegas came back with an extra fifteen hundred bucks, and, uh, yeah. and the time before that was the real winner. <laughs> you know, the last time that they went, it was five thousand bucks. In that, like we can recognize that that we reframe those moments poorly. Right. We, and we could do it with athletic achievements or we can do it with anything. Is there something that we can do to reframe those experiences more accurately? Is there something we can say to ourselves in exercise? Yeah. Helping others keep track and keep score by inviting them. Want to bet. Um, organizations do this. I, I have to think of uh, Bridgewater Associates, the hedge fund. Yeah. Where 
they're always collecting forecasts about the future where uh, the analysts at, at Bridgewater are making probabilistic forecasts. Okay, I think that, the, you know, there's a 60% chance that the ruble is going to decline relative to the dollar within the next month. And then people earn credibility points based on whether their forecasts come true. And it, there's, the organization keeps track of those. Lots of organizations uh, fail to help their employees get better calibrated by collecting predictions and then never following up to help people remember when they were right and when they were wrong about their predictions for product sales or whatever. So what, what would be your, your biggest decision-making tips that you sort of gathered from your research around overconfidence? I mean, how do we apply what you've talked about with respect to overconfidence and the recognition of that, and the dangers of that, how do we apply that to improvement on decision-making? So if there is one simple lesson, it's to think probabilistically. Give up this fantasy of perfect prediction. Content yourself with probabilistic forecasts where you admit that you don't know the future with certainty but you try to get better at thinking through the uncertainties. One way that I help participants in my studies do this is by inviting them to think about a probability distribution. So don't tell me who you think is going to win the game, but estimate the, um, the disparity. Is So you, you think that the Warriors are going to win their next game? Uh, well, how likely is it that they're going to score 10 points more? Than their opponents. Five to 10 points, zero to five. How likely is it that they'll lose? Think about the range of probabilities, the probability distribution, and, and how likely each of the different outcomes is. That sort of forces people away from feigned certainty about categorical outcomes and gets you thinking about the uncertainties inherent in any prediction about the future. So making it more specific will make us realize how difficult it is to predict. It helps. Yeah, it's not a perfect uh, perfect antidote to overconfidence, but it helps. Yeah, no, I love that because I think a, a lot of times like I'll, I'll see investors who maybe they have, um, maybe they at least perceive their ability or an understanding over one topic of the, you know, global economy or, or the, you know, business world or, or whatever it is, um, they might perceive their, their competency in this area to be above average. And, and sometimes it's right. Like I, you know, I might be talking to somebody who really understands uh, employment rates and the data on, on that um, backwards and forwards. And he knows what's going on um, in that area of the economy. And then he'll apply that knowledge to the broader spectrum and then have an opinion on the economy and then have an opinion on the American economy and then have an opinion on the American stock market and then have an opinion on what small cap stocks are going to do in July. Well, man, we just went like you went from one thing that's almost unrelated to what you have an opinion on. And so if we can say, OK, great, you, you got this prediction on on this category of companies. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with uh housing prices? What do you think is going to happen with, uh, you know, currency exchange rates? And then it kind of creates a picture of, oh, I guess I don't understand the myriad of variables that go into making a, allowing this information to influence my decision making. Uh, so acknowledging the imperfection in one's information uh, ought to bring 
some humility um, and thinking about the other players in the market and who's trading against you can be a, a useful, humbling uh, thought process, right? So if you're so sure that you want to buy some security because you think it's going to go up in value, well, who's trading against yeah. you? And what do they know that you There's don't? always someone. I, I had that very conversation with some clients years ago, and they were they had seen some late night show or <laughs> something, you know, some ad, you know, that there was some trading methodology. And they said, we're taking all our money. We're going to go do that. And I said, okay. Um, I said, so you're going to trade stocks. I mean, now that's different from being an investor, right? And that's, that's active trading. You're in and out every day, right? Yeah. They said, yeah, that's what we're going to do. I said, who do you think is on the other side of those trades? <laughs> They're like, what do you mean? I said, <laughs> professionals in New York City <laughs> who do this for a living, uh, that are going to be uh, trading on the other side of you sitting and here the, in the uh, real good know, first Texas is, do you think yeah. it's the person on the other side of that trade? Do you think it's the guy who sold you the course or not? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, uh, any other uh, decision-making words of wisdom for us, Doc? Oh man. Yeah. Um, the, when I, when I teach my classes on decision-making, um, the one gem, the, kernel, the essence of good decision-making that I hope all my students take away is remembering that choosing the option with the highest expected value is the essence of good decision-making. Yeah. And uh, making good estimates of expected value means estimating the utility of an outcome and its probability. Um, in concept, that seems like an, an easy calculation. In reality, it can be devilishly difficult. And one of the ways that we mess it up is having our utilities contaminate our probabilities, where we will overestimate the probability of some good thing happening because we want it to happen so much. And it'd be so great if it happened. That's a mistake. We want to get the best estimates of utility and probability that we possibly can for making those calculations. And then once you've committed, it's fine to get excited about the prospect that you've just uh, committed to pursuing um, and to um, embrace it with both arms and to um, charge forward eagerly into investing in the opportunity. But you, before, as the general picking which way to march, like you want to believe the insight from your scouts. Julie Galef has a wonderful book on the scout mindset. You don't want scouts who are delusionally overconfident about no. uh, the prospects of success in one direction or the other. Like you want the best information you can possibly get before you commit to some strategy. Mm. Don, I know your book is out decision leadership. Um, one thing that I, I think a lot of leaders struggle with when making decisions. Um, and I know at times I've struggled with this too, is um, a tendency to, to, to micromanage. Um, I, I would have never thought that I had a problem micromanaging, but then I noticed that I was getting frustrated with employees who would ask me to answer questions for them that I thought they should be answering for themselves. And, and I saw my frustration with that and said, well, that means I'm not micromanaging because I'm acknowledging that they sh that I shouldn't be, that, that they're frustrating me with their insistence that I micromanage. 
And I Why realized they, think they had to get your permission. Exactly. I realized eventually, <laughs> oh, well, that means if they think that I had to answer on what color the cups were going to be at the party or whatever the heck, that that I've done something to um, disempower them to make these decisions. Um, so what, what can people do to to give more more power um, to those they lead to make important decisions? That's a good question. Uh, every organization should be on guard against the risk of putting people in charge who are overconfident, right? So uh, as a leader, um, you, you should be aware that um, you're at greater risk than others of being overconfident. And that comes from a, a couple of things. First is just by virtue of your power in the organization, there are a lot of people who want to curry favor with you, and they're going to be whispering lots of sweet nothings in your ear, telling you how great you are and how wise and brilliant. And if you drink that Kool-Aid and believe them, you will be putting yourself at risk of making worse decisions. And the other problem is that uh, by virtue of having been successful, being promoted, it can be tempting to attribute too much to your own ability and to think, well, I got here because I'm so good. Of course, I should be deciding what color the cups are. <laughs> uh, so um, the flip side of that, the boss who's too sure of themselves is so many capable people over in the organization feeling like they have to defer to authority, being underconfident and not taking the control that will allow the, the boss to stop micromanaging. So empowering them by willing, being willing to admit your own limitations and trusting them to make decisions um, that they might not be sure they're ready to make yet is, is crucial for, for figuring out how to delegate better. Um, and they'll never do it exactly the way that uh, you would have done it. And it's possible that you're being too sure that your way is the right way. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. That's, that's very valuable. I mean, um, as a, a long, I think every day I get a little bit more aware, uh, as we should, our own our own mistakes and our own tendencies for our, our past behavior to kind of show itself negatively in front of us in the future. And uh, you're right. Maybe... Uh, what we think uh, and, and the way that we view the world, it, it's not always the one and only, uh, and it's not always even the best. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Don. I know I learned a lot from talking with you. Um, super valuable. My pleasure. Yeah. Where can people find your work and uh, where can people find your book? Um, thank, thanks for that invitation. So uh, Perfectly Confident, uh, you can find information about it at perfectlyconfident.com. Um, learnmore.org is, is my uh, academic website, uh, and there are links from th there to not just Perfectly Confident, but also my most recent book with Max Bazerman, Decision Leadership, which considers uh, how to make wise decisions and how to empower those around you to make wise decisions when you're a leader and you are in the privileged position of uh, being a decision architect that structures decision problems for others around you. Perfect. Thanks, Don. There are a few things that I picked up from the discussion. One was looking at sort of doing a constant reassessment, being honest with yourself about probabilities 
of success or the probabilities of how you're going to result in engaging in a behavior and listening to the outside voices who, who should know. You know. So that would be coaches, teachers, colleagues, you know, those types of things, so positive voices on giving you feedback on those assessments. So I, I think that those things as they relate to overconfidence and decision-making were kind of what struck me. My biggest takeaway was an easy way to check ourselves when we may be overconfident is to put some real tangible outcome on the line, right? Simply asking each other, wanna bet? When somebody expresses confidence in one area, really we'll, we'll force ourselves to recognize in the moment how confident we really are um, and, and maybe bring to light some additional risks that we're overlooking. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.